you turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. We're nearing the end of our exposition of this book. To be followed by a study? Well, I haven't fully decided. I had said Romans, but I'm wavering. We'll see. Here is the word of God. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so some have unwittingly entertained angels remember the prisoners as if chained with them those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled but fornicators and adulterers God will judge let your conduct be without covetousness be content with such things as you have for he himself has said I will never leave you nor forsake you so we may boldly say the Lord is my helper I will not fear what can man to me. Chapter 13 of the book of Hebrews is uh, something similar to what we find in other epistles. Towards the close, we often find these miscellaneous lists of, uh, you know, I, I just said miscellaneous, and I'm, I'm immediately going to retract that. We find these lists of uh, lists which are uh, crafted for very good reason, uh, but we find these lists of exhortations, and that's what this chapter is. Uh, we have a list here in verses 1 through 6, and then we have another uh, list in verses 7 through 17. Uh, just to close out uh, the chapter, we have verses 18 and 19, their prayer for him, his prayer for them, verses 20 and 21, and then the epistle close with a final appeal. I appeal to you, brethren, bear the word, uh, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in a few words. And a greeting in verse 24 and a salutation in verse 25. We've come to the end. We've come to the end of the epistle. The question which I have here, in which I, I was even struggling in, in answering this question to express myself, which underlies the difficulty, is what do we make of the chapter itself? How does it fit in with the epistle? Philip Edgecombe Hughes, his commentary, which I found so helpful to me, uh, calls it a postscript. Chapter 13 is a postscript and wonders along with others about its place in the epistle. It almost seems, uh, he wonders, though he ultimately doesn't think, as though it was just added on. Was it? Was it a kind of addendum to be read either before the letter or after? Well, I have to say, I'm not uh, a huge fan of uh, those sorts of questions or suggestions. I think we should always except the canonical form in which Scripture comes to us, which includes chapter 13. It includes chapter 16 of Mark's Gospel and so many other passages. We shouldn't really ever ask, does this, does this passage belong? And the canonical form of Scripture and of the book of Hebrews includes chapter 13 as part of the book of Hebrews. And so it is our duty to understand God's Word precisely as it comes to us. But the reason I emphasize this and as I even mistakenly began uh, to suggest myself, is because there is a temptation we might feel to read uh, this closing list of exhortations as a kind of miscellaneous list with little or no connection to the prior contents of the epistle. Just an addendum. 
Here are a few things I want you to remember as Christians. Uh, Let me throw them out at random. There's a temptation uh, that we could read it that way. And there is a very real possibility that I could preach it that way. Let me just give you a few of your duties that you ought to do now that we're at the close of the epistle. But I would suggest that no greater mistake could be made with respect to this portion of scripture. It doesn't hang in isolation. I think better, better put, it flows from the mighty streams of doctrine that precedes it. But supposing that's how we sought to treat this portion of scripture, as a miscellaneous list that hangs in isolation, if I stood here and simply expounded upon your duty to do these five things in this passage, and ignored its connection with the prior portions of the epistle, what would we miss? Well, we would miss two things, I think. For one thing, we would miss the true impulse, or what John Murray calls the dynamic that makes the Christian ethic what it is. The impulse of Christian living or Christian holiness is not found in the law as such, law coming to us as a bare command or as a list of duties considered in itself in isolation, but rather law set within the context of a restored relationship to God through the priesthood of Jesus Christ. In other words, the duties which are prescribed here do not stand on their own, but they are presented to us within the context of the broader arguments concerning the priesthood of Jesus Christ and the fruits of that priesthood in the life of the believer. Within that context is not only a renewed relationship to our creator and our judge, but also within that context of a renewed relationship comes the power to obey, which we did not find in the law as such. But in the context of the gospel we find power to obey. God enables us to see in his commands now, not his frowns, but his smiles. Now that we are reconciled to him, the law takes on an altogether different aspect. We have not come to Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion. And through the powerful ministry of Jesus Christ as our advocate in heaven, we find, as he says in earlier portions of the epistle, grace to help in time of need. To help with what? Well, to help us to live the Christian life, of course. To help us not to sin and to fall and to falter. Grace to help us to keep this law that is now presented to us. And this law which we read in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit has placed into our hearts as one of the cardinal blessings of the new covenant. Understand then the context and the impulse of Christian living. But there's another thing we would miss if we simply treated this list in isolation or or as an addendum to the epistle. We would fail to see, namely, why these admonitions make the most sense as the conclusion to this letter. In other words, why these and not others? What was it that made him think of these particular admonitions now? Well, Philip Edgecombe Hughes says it was because these were the particular sins that they were prone to, and so he now needed to deal with them in closing. But I think that's too shallow. Better to say, because these are the very things a man will do who has a grasp of what was said in chapters 1 through 12. In other words, I'm suggesting these are the most natural admonitions to give at this point based upon the earlier arguments. And a man who has fully grasped the contents of those arguments is precisely the man he's speaking to. It is he alone who will be prepared and equipped to do these very things that we find in this closing list. So let us try to look at this list of admonitions like this as flowing out of the, nat- uh, of the earlier contents and as the natural conclusion of all that has been said thus far. 
First, let brotherly love continue. Verse 1. I would say there's a world of thought in this single phrase, this single verse. Let brotherly love continue. For one thing, look at this word continue. What a perfect word to capture all he's been saying thus far. The Christian life, you know, he tells us is like a pilgrimage. He's been saying that a long journey to the heavenly city. Or to change the metaphor as we find it in chapter 12, the Christian life is like a race to be run with endurance. And there's a real danger, he's been telling us all throughout the epistle, that we might at some point in the course of this race, this long race we are running, uh, turn back. Which he calls apostasy, which we call apostasy. And there's no stronger indication that we have begun to waver in this race or perhaps even that we have turned back, then that brotherly love should wane in the heart of the believer. Here is a certain mark, beloved, that one is backsliding in this race. That brotherly love has ceased. It is against this tendency that he says, let brotherly love continue. So long as you have to run this race, so long as you find you are in this world and you're surrounded by your fellow Christian in the church, and let it continue until you get where you are going. But look at the other word. And it is a single word in the Greek. The word is Philadelphia. And this word means exactly what it is translated here to me, namely brotherly love. Well, I once lived in Philadelphia during my seminary days. The city of brotherly love, they say. Only I found it was actually the opposite. That it was, in fact, a very poor name for this city. It was called the city of brotherly love, only it wasn't. Well, let no one have that impression of us in the church as Christian people. Let it be evident among us that there is brotherly love. That the Christian church is a city where brotherly love exists and where it continues. And in this place, the emphasis on the word brotherly. It is a filial love. The love that exists between brothers. In other words, you love this person not so much for the kind of person he is or because he possesses such wonderful qualities that makes him lovely in your eyes, but simply because he is your brother. That fact alone makes you love him. And this takes into account something that every Christian ought to have some grasp of. The fact that a Christian is someone who is now related to all other Christians. They are all now to him brothers and sisters in Christ as the early church was accustomed to speak of one another as we find in the pages of the New Testament. And even I find some of you saying to me, brother. You see, not in themselves, but in him. This way of speaking takes into account not only that they are brothers, but how they came to be brothers. It wasn't because they decided to be brothers, but because Jesus has made them so. And so they are. One of the most precious fruits of Christ's priesthood is the communion of the saints. And that's what he's reflecting upon when he says, let brotherly love continue. Not simply the communion of the saints, but the communion of the saints as a precious fruit of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. In other words, he isn't just throwing out admonitions at random. He is wisely and pastorally applying the prior teaching to these Christians. A man who understands the priesthood of Jesus Christ is a man in whom brotherly love will not only exist, but it will continue. Do you understand what it is Christ has purchased by his own blood? 
By his priestly sacrifice, he not only reconciles God to man and man to, to God, but man to man. And the fellowship of those who are now reconciled to God and thus to one another is what we call the church. But that relationship, he is saying, must be kept up. It must be maintained and preserved as indicated here by this admonition. Let brotherly love continue. In other words, see to it that the fruits of Christ's blood are maintained and not lost among you. Do you remember what it was that Christ prayed uh, in his high priestly prayer? Indicating once more to us the relationship he sustains to the church as our great high priest. He prays in that prayer, John chapter 17, that they, that is the church, all who are his, all whom the Father has given to him, that they may all be one, even as he and his Father are one. He prays for the unity and the love of the church. In other words, he prays that brotherly love might continue in the church, so long as there is a church. And do you realize how it is that he makes us one, that is, brothers? He does so in this way, as expressed in chapter 2. The first truth we must grasp about this priesthood, that he became one like us, that is, he became our brother. Chapter 2, verse 11. You really have to read all of chapter 2 to get this sense, but let me just read the key verses. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Verse 17 Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Do you realize what he's saying? He's saying that the relationship you now sustain to Jesus as your high priest is that of a brother. And now if our relationship to him should be described on such terms even that the Son of God now is my brother and that he is not ashamed to be called my brother. Let us view all who are united to him in the same manner as his brothers too and thus my brother. And can I not love him whom Christ loves and who loves Christ in return? He who Christ regards as his brother. Do you now grasp why it is that Jesus said in John chapter 13 that this is the defining mark of true Christian fellowship that we might love one another even as he has loved us that he has regarded us as his brothers and thus we ought to regard ourselves as brothers to be saved by Jesus our elder brother is to be brought into the church it is to become part of this great company this great cloud of witnesses and it is one of the surest signs that a man is a true Christian and that he has a saving interest in Jesus Christ as his head when he finds that he does really love the saints. Oh, but as precious as it is to us, it is hateful to Satan. And he would rob us of it if he could and if we would let him. And how often he does. One of his greatest victories over us is simply that he would make us to hate our brother rather than to love him. You see, he can never undo the fact that we are brothers, for that would be to undo the work of Christ, which he can never do. But he can spoil it, at least as long as we are here in this world. He can make us feel a contempt for our brother, and how often he does. How often he makes us hate our brother whom we once loved. I've seen Christians who once loved one another grow to hate each other because they didn't agree about a single point. I've even witnessed it here in this church. 
the love of the brothers ceasing rather than continuing. Matthew Henry said something that struck me as very wise. He says, disputes about religion too often produce a decay in Christian affection. In other words, as I say, they cause Christian love to cease rather than to continue just because we differ on one point. Well, let me just say this. There's a great deal of disputing about religion going on today. But is there any way to love our brothers still? I would say yes, there is. But only so long as Christ and his priesthood is kept front and center. In other words, only so long as we take chapter 13, verse 1, along with all the rest that we have seen in this epistle. Then, I think, brotherly love has a chance, and it might very well continue, but not otherwise. Next, in verse 2, and we ought to see these first three as belonging to the same category. He says, do not forget to entertain strangers. This is how he puts it. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. The first question we ought to settle is, who are the strangers? It would seem that verses 2 and 3 are merely expansions of verse 1, as expressing the kinds of way brotherly love is to continue. Verse 2, entertain strangers. Verse 3, visit those in prison. But describing the same attitude, the same action. And just as the prisoner in verse 3 is most likely a brother, as we saw him in chapter 10, verse 34. So the stranger in verse 2 is most likely here a fellow pilgrim in need. Both verses, verses 2 and 3, describe the same situation. Persecuted Christians, some in prison, others fleeing. Imagine the man who was fleeing. This was a common experience in the early church. When this man came to another town, he would seek shelter from his fellow Christians. And what he is describing here is the experience of the man who was, who was to receive him. He would sense in his heart, this man may be a stranger, yet I find he's more like a brother. And so I take him in in his moment of need. You see, verse 2 is an application of verse 1. And the church has always been known for this. Ever since the first century, and even before that, there is even this remarkable history where Abraham and Lot, by their hospitality, actually entertained angels unawares in chapter 18 and 19 of the book of Genesis. Do not forget to entertain strangers, strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. That is, Abraham and Lot. And that's not to say that the same thing will happen to us. Only I would be quick to add that it could I don't doubt that it could, you know, because now that I am getting, or now that I am set on getting to heaven as a pilgrim, my view of this world is quite different than it once was. I'm conscious of greater realities than what I can see and what is plain to my eyes now that I live by faith. I am aware not only of Christ in heaven, but of heaven itself and of the angelic host who not only attend to him in worship, but who attend to me on my pilgrimage. If you remember, the opening chapter of the epistle compares Christ to angels. It tells us that Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, is better than angels. But even to say this is to remind us that angels are real. And if I know he is greater than angels, and that angels are enlisted in his service, he who is greater than they, then who is to say what kind of interaction I might have with them along the way? 
as he looks after me as one of his. You see, some find this way of putting things uh, to be strange. This mention of angels. They seem to be at pains to explain it. But I don't know any pilgrim who knows himself to be a pilgrim who would find this strange. But whatever you make of the angels, this much is clear. We ought to be hospitable to strangers we meet along the way. In other words, we ought not to be in such a hurry to get to heaven that we don't have time for anyone that we meet along the way. Especially when we meet a fellow pilgrim in need. May I just note, in light of the timing of this admonition, what is about to happen next week at this church. Not a few pilgrims will be passing through here. And I hope that we might show the kind of hospitality envisioned here. I'm, of course, referring to Presbytery. So many ministers passing through. Do not forget to entertain strangers. But then in the third place, remember the prisoners, he says, as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. And as I've argued, this is like the prior two, verses one and two, another admonition for Christian sympathy and love. It calls to mind what he said in chapter 10, verse 34. Let me read that verse now. He says, For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. You had sympathy for me in prison, he's saying. Well, let that sympathy continue as part of your brotherly love that continues. He speaks of a love which is motivated by a fellow feeling. In other words, sympathy. As though chained with them, since you yourselves are in the body also. Now, there's two ways we could take this, and I'm not convinced which of the two is correct. Either as one who is likewise in the body, that is, one who is mortal and flesh, or as members of the same body, the church, so that none suffer without all suffering. And as I say, I don't know which one of the two is true. And if you were to take your own study of the commentaries, you would find them neatly divided along two lines. But either way, it's clear that we are once more united to our brother in every way, whether as conceived from the church or as sharing in a fellow fleshly existence. And in this uh, inadequate view, an adequate view of Christ's priesthood will enable us to regard others as he regards them. In other words, as we think of what it is to have sympathy, Christian sympathy, we ought to think of Christ. And what does he think of those who are in prison for his sake? Well, for one thing, we know that he remembers them. We are told to remember them. Well, remember that Christ remembers them and that the prayers of the saints are precious to him, especially those who suffer for his sake, and that he has great sympathy for them in their distresses. As he says earlier on, chapter 2, verse 17, I read it earlier. Let me read it again. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Speaking there of a fellow feeling which Christ has for the saints. Having knit himself to them, sharing in their humanity, making them one with his body. 
He's constantly animated by a fellow feeling for them, especially in their sufferings, even now as he resides in heaven. And as he stands in heaven as their advocate and priest, he is ready to help. So in saying, remember those who are mistreated, he is saying, remember how he feels for them, that he is animated by a fellow feeling for those who are in the body like him. But you will also remember what he says about visiting those in prison in Matthew chapter 25. What you've done to the least of these, my brothers, you've done unto me. Again, seeing that he knits and includes himself with them. They are my brothers, he says, that they cannot be considered apart from him, nor he from them. So close is the bond which attaches himself to them as their great high priest. And so he regards any kindness done to the saints as done to himself. In remembering them, therefore, you are remembering him. You are doing him a kindness, just as Abraham and Lot did to the angels, which is reason enough to do it. And one of the ways he expresses his own sympathy for the church in her distress is by his many members. In other words, he exercises his priestly concern and sympathy for those in distress by the saints the saints themselves, which is exactly how we should view this admonition. As a call to view ourselves as instruments by which he expresses his sympathy and loving care for the saints. Anything less than this involves a diminished view of his heart and his priesthood. But to take this admonition seriously is to show we know what it means for Christ to have sympathy for the church, not as a mere theory, but as a way of life for the church herself, now that she stands in saving relation to him and is the constant recipient of his sympathy and love. But then fourth, he says, marriage is honorable among all. Verse 4. The word let is supplied in many translations, and I would agree with that uh, Let marriage be held in honor among all. And here, if ever, it would appear there is an admonition which is strange, loosely attached to the epistle, if at all. What has this got to do with the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the great theme of the epistle? Well, I would say perhaps not so strange at all, once you realize what he's warning against. Not such a strange admonition, not so out of place. He says the marriage bed is to be undefiled, undefiled by fornication, undefiled by adultery, undefiled by pornography. It is to be a place where the husband and wife cling to one another in sexual purity, forsaking all others. And do you see why? Read the whole verse. God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Has that not been the great theme all along? That we... As uh, sinners have to deal with a God, the judge of all, who will not leave the sinner nor the sin unpunished. How great indeed is our need for our great high priest in heaven in light of this fact. We are once again dealing, you see, with the judge of all. God will judge the fornicator and the adulterer, of course. Here is a profitable, profitable word for pilgrims. And only they know how to take it. The judgment of God is what we're seeking to avoid. And by God's grace, we will avoid it if we hold fast to our profession firm unto the end. And yes, do you see that the way of sexual sin is the way of apostasy. That countless men have made a shipwreck of their faith because they did not honor honor marriage, but rather defiled it. Think once again of Esau, the most recent 
example of apostasy, the kind of man he was, that profane and immoral person, that fornicator. We read of in chapter 12, verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. What happened to him? Verse 17, for you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Do you see the connection now? between this admonition and the whole epistle, why this is such a natural thing for him to say at this point. Marriage provides safe passage for all who take it. It protects us from sin and keeps us from the wrath of God. To me, one of the most obvious indications of the sad decline of the the church today, which is to say of her apostasy, is that marriage is not held in honor by all. It isn't. Forget about the world. Think about the church and ask yourself, is marriage held in honor? No, it isn't. It is dishonored by divorce and remarriage, as Jesus tells us not to do in the Gospels. It is dishonored when husbands do not love their wives as Christ loved the church and when wives do not submit to their their husbands as to the Lord. It is dishonored when it is defiled by sexual sin or perhaps by the absence of sex at all in the marital bed. The marital bed, he says is a place of honor and it is a place of safety for pilgrims. It protects from defilement and sin. Do you know it? Again, here is a word for pilgrims and for they only. But so too is the next word, which is the final word. An encouragement to contentment, verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Are you beginning to see how it all fits together? Well, contentment is a grace which pilgrims know well, or at least they of all people ought to know it. There is nothing so out of place in the Christian life, seeing that we are pilgrims who are seeking a better country that is a heavenly one, than that we should always be seeking more and more out of this world, never content with what we have. That is surely a sign that something is wrong, that our spirits and our hopes are out of whack, that the world has got too much of a say in our lives. Ask yourselves, beloved, What is it that you're really seeking as pilgrims, as Christians? I hope there's only one answer that occurs to all of you at once. And that answer is heaven. Heaven is what I'm seeking. Heaven is where I hope to get and to be. Nothing else could ever satisfy my soul. But I'm sorry to tell you, far too many reveal it is otherwise in their souls by their inordinate pursuit of worldly things. The covetous man is the man who always seeks more. The Christian is one who is content with what he has. The Gentiles spend all their time getting as much out of this world as they can, whereas the Christian's whole frame of mind is cast in a different demeanor, one of heavenly mindedness. Listen again to what he says in chapter 10, verse 34. He says, You had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Is that true of you? Would you gladly give up all if only you knew that you had better treasure in heaven? Which, of course, you do if you are a Christian. There are times in the Christian life when we have to check ourselves, when we have to take stock of our souls, when we have to realize we've gone too far and the world has gotten its grip on us far too thoroughly, when we've become covetous and not content. And so we're sad to realize that it is time 
it is time once again to repent and to take up the life of the pilgrim. There is nothing that could be more unfitting for a Christian who is a pilgrim than, than that he should behave as the Gentiles do. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. Verses uh, 31 through 34, where he says, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That, beloved, is a spirit of contentment. The whole of Matthew chapter 6 and the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, describes a spirit of Christian simplicity, Christian contentment, and Christian faith. And the Christian who knows this, that God will supply my every need, as Jesus explains, and so he isn't busy worrying about what he will get for tomorrow, is able to say, I will never leave you. Or excuse me, uh, verse 6, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? For he knows, as he says in verse 5, that he will never leave him nor forsake him. You see, the real secret to Christian contentment in the Christian sense is just to know that God is there and to know what God is like. He's like a loving father. But have we not seen what God is like in this great epistle? And tying this very briefly as I close to the theme of the resurrection... I would, re- I would remind you that our Lord uttered these very words to his disciples at the close of Matthew's gospel as quoted in chapter uh, 13, verse 5 here. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yes, he leaves us in this world. He goes to his Father. He goes to prepare a place for us. But he doesn't leave us alone or as orphans who have none to care for us. Nor does he forsake us. He is ever with the church helping her, sustaining her, supporting her in her many trials, pouring out the oil of grace upon the fire of her faith. Grace to help in time of need. He has great sympathy and great love for the church. He will never forsake her. And here is a word of encouragement which the resurrected Lord offers to the church. And oh, that we might take it to heart. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Thus I will be content. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Amen. And let us come now to the table.